The legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. I was asked as a journalist to find out why kids were leaving IU. And, and what I uncovered, what we were seeing was just the tip of the iceberg. And I think one thing a lot of people, as I watch uh, the reaction on Twitter, everybody focuses on Neil Reed and grabbing the student by the arm and all these little things. And what they fail to, to, to kind of digest is that even the university came to the conclusion that he was making people scared within the university. Welcome to the Edge of Sports Podcast. I'm Dave Zirin, and this week I'm feeling healthy. This week we speak to Robert Abbott. He is the producer, director, and narrator of the new ESPN 30 for 30 film, The Last Days of Night, which is about Indiana basketball coach Bob Knight's flammable final days as head coach over at IU. This is, for my money, the best 30 for 30 that they've done. And I cannot wait to break it down with Robert Abbott, while also not trying to do too many spoilers, because people should watch this film when it airs on December 11th. I also have some choice words uh, about Colin Kaepernick and the rejection of Colin Kaepernick by the Washington football team. I've got Just Stand Up and Just Sit Down awards, some listener feedback, and more. But first, Robert Abbott. Robert Abbott, um... I don't want to reveal too much about The Last Days of Night because I want folks to see it on December 11th and ESPN+. Plus. But I'm hoping you could give us, first and foremost, some background because you really could have done any 30 for 30 at this point. You'd already done one previously. How and why did you come to Bob Knight as a subject matter? Well, basically, Dave, I had pitched Catholics versus Convicts, which uh, I wanted to direct. And John Dahl, who actually uh, started with me at ESPN, kind of, uh, excuse me, CNN, back in 1987, was a good friend. And he gave that film to another director. And I was kind of frustrated. And John kept telling me, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. I want you to tell the story of your investigation into Bob Knight that I did when, uh, back in uh, 1999 and 2000 while I was at CNN. So the film was never my idea. I wanted to tell the story of Catholics versus convicts, uh, but he gave that to another director. And then he said, I want you to direct yourself. I was asked in 1999, three high school All-Americans had left Indiana University's basketball program and Bob Knight's program. And my boss at CNN, Steve Robinson, called me into his office one day to talk about it after Luke Recker had left. He was Mr. Indiana. He was kind of all everything, their leading scorer. And at midnight one night, he had faxed in, you know, uh, his decision to leave the program. My boss and I talked about it and he said, go find out what's happening. So that's how the initial story or my involvement into Bob Knight in Indiana started. And John Dahl wanted me to tell the, the full story, all the things that kind of fell through the cracks back then in a film, a 30 for 30 film today. And that's the film you saw. Yeah. Any reservations about going back to uh, what must have been a um, a high point in your own journalistic history and reexamining it uh, almost twenty years later? There was a lot of reservations because I'm not usually on camera. I- I've been a producer. Uh, I started at CNN, like I said, back in 1987. I'm a storyteller. I had done a number of documentary, a couple of documentaries there. 
was part of Sports Century at ESPN. I had uh, created Top 5 Reasons You Can't Blame, co-created E60. I had done a lot of different things. Nobody knows who I am, and I kind of like that. I'm always a storyteller behind the scenes. So my only real reservation was John asking me to be the voice of the director, the producer, and the writer of it. So that was a great challenge to me. And to be honest, Dave, I screwed it up at first. I, I, I resorted back to like not putting myself out front. It wasn't about me. And John saw the first cut of the film and he said, Robert, you have to decide, is this a film about Coach Knight, Neil Reed, or yourself? And John kept pushing me to tell my story. What he kept pointing to was all the president's men. He said, that's a, that's a story about Richard Nixon, but he's not even in it. And, he, and so to be honest, what I did is I, 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 had, I had seen it before. I'd read the book, got the book again, reread it, and I had a DVD of the film. And it was just cycling in my office in the background. Uh, so I was just listening to it. And then I, I finally tapped in to what John was trying to draw out of me. And it was difficult because I don't, I, I usually don't draw attention to myself. I, you know, you could probably name a number of stories that I've done and you have no idea I did them. So this, that, that was the only real reservation on my part. Now, um, over the years from 2000 to 2018, um, had you kept tabs on the, the arc of Bob Knight and what he'd been up to during that time? And did that play a role in you wanting or not wanting to revisit this story? Yeah, I, I mean, I'm a sports fan. I had worked at ESPN. I left CNN shortly after I had done my initial reporting on Coach Knight and after he had been fired at Indiana. Uh, and I had spent 11 years at ESPN, so I was very familiar with it, uh, his arc, and that he had been hired at Texas Tech. He had ultimately been hired at ESPN, and he had been uh, his contract wasn't renewed as a basketball analyst. So I knew it. I didn't follow it that closely. And ironically, when I was asked to do the story back in 1999 and 2000, we never thought it would be what it became, Steve Robinson and I. We sat in his office that day, and all Steve kept saying is three high school All-Americans left in the last two years. Something's going on. And we debated what it may or may not be, and we thought it was going to be a story about AAU basketball and how high school kids now had a sense of entitlement, meaning they had gotten a lot of attention. People who knew who they were, they thought they were better than they were when they went to college and they weren't ready or equipped to play for kind of an old school coach like Bob Knight. So to be honest, Dave, when I walked out of Steve's office that day, I was like, I don't want to do this story. I didn't think it was going to be, I didn't think we were going to get anywhere. If that makes sense. It wasn't an investigation. I just thought it was going to be kind of a, a little bit of a soft kind of look at society and these kids come in with a big head and when a coach tells them to play defense and do this and they're not ready for it, they leave. And I thought, you know, that's what, why Neil Reed, Jason Collier and Luke Recker left. It wasn't until I spoke to Neil Reed that I was like, wait, there's a different story here. Yeah. It's a story of physical, verbal and psychological abuse. Um, and, were you surprised over the years um, to see Knight land on his feet? And or was, that, was, was that bothersome to you at all, given what you had done to really show the world who this person was? Like to see him land on his feet and even be revered as this hero by Texas Tech, to see him get hired at ESPN, uh, to see him still regarded in Indiana as this kind of hero. I mean, is that, um, is that nettlesome? Or, or, or even surprising to you? It wasn't at all. Because, <clears throat> excuse me, I never had anything against Coach Knight. To be honest, I read a season on the brink when it came out. I had just graduated college, and I read it, I believe, in two or three days. It was a, it was a great book. And, and the book ends with Dave Kindred saying, there's, an, uh, there's a column Dave Kindred writes, that I believe Knight was reading when uh, John Feinstein, who wrote the book, was in the room. And it ends with a question, did the ends justify the means? 
And when I closed that book, I said yes, because I'd never heard any player really speak negatively about Coach Knight. He had graduated his players. He was winning. And that part's in the film. So even though I had done this basically 17 months of looking into Coach Knight from the day I got the assignment to the day he was ultimately fired at Indiana, I knew he would get another job. He's a winner. And he he raised a lot of money at Texas Tech. He started selling out that arena, took him to the NCAA tournament. Uh, you know, why wouldn't ESPN hire him? He's one of the greatest basketball minds ever in the game. And if you can have him break down basketball games, you can decide, and the people listening to this can, can decide whether he's a good analyst on TV or not. But as far as a basketball mind, he's brilliant. And just because I had brought all these other darker aspects of his personality to light, you know, it wasn't my, I'm not in the position to hire or fire him at ESPN or hire or fire him at Texas Tech. And I, I knew as a winner, Bob, there's a bite from Bob Lee in the film that says winning excuses a lot of things. And he was a winner. And you know better than anyone in our society, when you're a winner, people will turn their head and look in the other direction kind of when you step out of line and, and you're given a lot of rope and not just in the world of sports, but in Hollywood in television in government, you know, if, if you can move the needle, people will excuse a lot. And, and coach Knight moved the needle. Now the, the, the original CNN report comes out in 2000. There's a re- ferocious response on the IU campus and that you show on film uh, in terms of the students, uh, I mean, damn, damn near rioting um, at IU. Um, do you think there is still this Bob Knight nostalgia at Indiana University, or is it more like a chapter in the university's past that they'd rather not discuss? It's somewhere in between. There is, I, I think it's both. Because if, if you look, interestingly, I'm not a big Twitter guy. I, I started an account a little while ago because I knew the film was coming out, and the other night, it, it's been on ESPN Plus for six or seven months, but when the film aired on ESPN, I had it on, but I wasn't watching. I was just watching Twitter. And there is there, there's a, there are a large number of people who still idolize Coach Knight and think he's one of the greatest coaches, you know, ever to coach in the game. And there's also, you know, that's why he's such an interesting topic because there's people who love him and admire him and worship him. And there's people who despise him. And when I started to do the film, I said to myself, I don't want people from either camp. You know, there's a laundry list of people who hate him, who I can get on camera to say bad things about him. And there's a laundry list of people who love him and worship him, who I could have gotten on camera to say great things about him. What I tried to do is get that middle group, people who I respected and people who are respected in the business who know both sides of coach Knight. You know, I did an interview with Frank before DeFord before he passed away, Dave Kindred, Malcolm Moran, uh, Angelo Pizzo, who wrote Hoosiers and Gene Hackman's character was based loosely on coach Knight. And they all see the goodness in coach Knight and the darker side of him. So when I started kind of putting together my interview list, that's who I went to. Well, I'm, I'm going to be, I, I think you did a very even handed job in the film of doing that. But I left the film not seeing the goodness, and or I should say, very hard pressed to see the goodness. I mean, yeah, you've got the the graduation rates, but you it really forces you to ask the question about what excuses that level of abuse, which is above and beyond just being a hard ass and trying to get people to play good defense. And in that line of thought, like I was really struck by. Um, Someone on Twitter who tagged both of us when when I wrote on Twitter how much I loved the film, uh, former player Todd Jadlow, who wrote that he was still reckoning with being punched by Bob Knight. He was still reckoning with how that was messing with his head, and that that's thirty years ago, and it just made me wonder also like how 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 dark this story even is. Like like if if every player was able to be on sodium pentothal and speak about what they experienced in that program. I think different players experience different things. And I do think 
in some ways, Coach Knight embodies a lot of the things that we want in a program and or a coach. And I think that's why he's so compelling. I think Coach Knight's highs are as high as possibly any coach who's ever lived. And his lows are as low as to what you saw in any coach. The one thing that I took from my original reporting that, that meant a, that, that really kind of hit home with me is I interviewed so many players and these kids, their whole life was basketball. Neil Reed from eight years old on dreamed of playing there, dreamed of playing for coach night. He told me it was an out of body experience when he first pulled on the candy stripe sweats. He loved it. He was living his dream, but he ended up hating going to practice. And there's people who may listen to me now and go, well, Quinn Buckner loved going and so-and-so loved going and Steve Alford. And, and the, the players I talked to in the mid to late nineties, a lot of them dreaded going to practice. And basically there's a line in the film when they lose to Pepperdine where I say, you know, once again, Coach Knight had, had, you know, the team had nothing left to give come the NCAA tournament. And, and I think in the 70s and 80s, he was the same coach, but he knew when to throw it, put his arm around you and say, hey, Dave, great practice today. And, 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 and people, human beings, will put up with a lot. You know, you may put up with being berated, slapped, kicked, punched, if you're going to, and you win a national title and they're like, you're, you know, Dave is remembered for, you're remembered for the rest of your life for winning a title. And you tend to forget some of the darker side, right? You tend to forget some of the, you know, what you had to put up with to do that. And, and you, you, you take a step back and you say, I know it was wrong probably, but was it justified? Hey, we won and I'm famous for it for the rest of my life. But all of a sudden in the 90s, he won his last title in 87. In the 90s, when you're not, you don't, you can't fall back on Big Ten championships, final four appearances and NCAA tournaments. Then you start to say, you know, why is he kicking, slapping, punching, headbutting, mentally abusing us? And I think that's why those three kids left. That's why my boss asked me to look into it. And this film is really about a journalist's kind of journey into uncovering a darker side of somebody who to that point was a legend mm. and you, you, we've mentioned neil reed several times in this interview uh neil reed the player who really blew the whistle um bob knight in 2000 talked about bob knight putting his hand on his throat and a big part of the film is is you finding that footage and the impact of that footage uh without giving too much away um Looking back over the last 20 years, do you see Neil Reed as a, a tragic figure or a heroic one? I think it's both. I think he's both. Uh, I think he's heroic. And what I want people to, when people watch the film, yes, it's about Indiana. Yes, it's about Bob Knight. Yes, it's about Neil Reed. And to some extent, it's about my journey as a journalist. But you can change the names and change the faces and change the locations. And it's really a film about power and the abuse of power and what happens when those, when people, in, in many ways, good people who are in a position of power look the other way when, when someone who is powerful starts abusing that power. I mean, in our society today, I mean, just in the last year with the Me Too movement, it's that was that was men in a large part using their power in a sexual way over women right they're just abusing their power coach knight abused his power there was no one in the state of indiana who could tell him what to do he had gone through numerous presidents numerous athletic directors and the people in indiana i do you know i want you to know this and i want everybody listening they're actually good people. I don't think they sat there and said, let's let them get away with this. It just happens. It's like a drip over 29 years. 
this president lets him get away with that. This athletic director lets him get away with this. And sooner or later, nobody could tell him what to do. And I don't think Indiana wanted it to happen. I know Bob Knight didn't want it to happen. Neil Reed didn't want it to happen. But, but that's what happens when you allow someone to get that powerful, whether it's in Hollywood, you know, the television industry, CEOs around the country. If there's no one, if there's no checks and balances in your organization, things like this can happen. Mm. You know, uh, I don't think I'm giving too much away by saying this about the film. Um, One thing you didn't do in the end, and I think it probably would have been too on the nose if you had, was talk about Knight being uh, brought out by Donald Trump to lead rallies for him uh, in in uh, in Indiana and introduce Knight in Indiana and him, you know, Trump trumpeting Knight's endorsement and Knight. I don't know if you saw this, but being accused of, I believe, sexual harassment when he visited uh, Trump in D.C. All of these these like breadcrumbs about where Knight is right now. Um, what, what was your thought process, though, um, in terms of the decision to not? use that as part of the footage at the end and 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 do you see anything any parallels between trump and knight like how do you explain the the attraction to one another we talked long and hard about it most of the film almost every interview was shot before even the uh, i think we were shooting some of the last interviews during the republican primaries and that's kind of the first time when Donald Trump, we didn't know if he was really a serious candidate. And then I believe during the Republican primary, the Indiana primary came up and he brought Coach Knight out. Uh, We had shot the majority of the film. We talked about it. We had long discussions about it. And there are parallels. For me personally, I'm not a political person. I'm actually a registered independent now. So I thought that if I brought that in, I was going to immediately alienate half my audience. And it really didn't impact my story because John kept saying, tell me your story. Tell me the story of your investigation. And what I did was I told the story of my investigation as a journalist and what it's like to go up about against a powerful entity and a powerful organization. And I knew that when people watch the film, many people would come to the conclusion that you have it. And, and we had a conversation and I said, I think people are going to draw, you know, parallels to the me too movement to coach Knight and Donald Trump. So I didn't think I needed to. And, and just because of who I am and it, and it didn't involve me back then. And even now I followed it. There's, you know, there are two peas in a pod, to be honest, but I didn't feel I needed to say it in the film because I knew as people watched it, they would connect the dots on their own. It would be there. Um, I really appreciate your time. I I just have one more question here. This is the one I've really been dying to ask you here because this film hit me in a very personal way because I remember growing up as a kid, I read Season on the Brink. I mean, several times. I mean, a dog-eared season on the brink. Great book. It was a great book. And it was a book that very much upset Knight. I remember people would chant Knight Stakes season on the brink when the team would go to opposing stadiums and arenas. But when I read the book, I walked away from that book revering Bob Knight. I mean, so did I, became, I. I became an IU fan living in New York City, like wearing IU t-shirts and whatnot. Wow. Uh, to school while everybody else was wearing, you know, St. John's or uh, more of the professional teams, you know, the Knicks and whatnot. I was, I was Mr. Hoosier and really? I even wrote him. Yeah. And I, I built him up as this almost like father figure for myself. I wrote him a letter. Uh, they responded to me and um, he responded to me and invited me to come sit in on a practice in Bloomington, which, which I never did, but I kept the letter forever. And now I look back on that, and I, I don't want to say I'm embarrassed about it because I was just a kid, but I, I'm still a little bit bewildered by my you know, 12, 13-year-old reaction to this book. And I, I guess I wanted to ask you, where does that even come from in your mind, in the American psyche, where we revere people? 
who have these kinds of personality traits. And I mean, it's it's a big umbrella, but everyone from Bob Knight to Tony Soprano, you know, this idea of this this hulking figure who may do things that we find detestable, but their their strength somehow makes us want to be in their presence. Where does that come from? Where, what do you see in that? And what role does journalism play in checking those impulses we have? I, I think all of your impulses as a 13-year-old and as, as you grew up and had your feelings towards Coach Knight, you shouldn't be embarrassed of those because he did great things. There's, it, It's kind of like if you could cut Coach Knight in half, you so want one half of him. He was about team play. He was about discipline. The one thing all the players said is he made us go to class. Boy, if I was 10 minutes late, I'd be into practice and he'd be like, why are you 10 minutes late to your, your math class today? Like he, he embodied everything we want. And especially the people in the state of Indiana want, he embodied their work ethic, you know, a team before me or team before I, he had all these character traits that are admirable that you latched on to as a kid. And I did too. When I shut that book, I admired him. I had no idea 13 years later, my boss would ask me to look into him, but he's also the other person he is. We talk about it in the film. He's the, he's Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Uh, there's a bite early in the film where Dick Vitale says he has a heart of gold for people he loves, admires, and respects. And nothing, you know, there's nothing in the film truer than that. If he loves, admires, and respects you, he is so loyal to you and will do anything. That was evident when, in night after the 1981 season, Landon Turner gets in an automobile accident and he's paralyzed for the rest of his life. Coach Knight did so many things for him, raising money to build a home that he could live in that was wheelchair accessible. He, 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 there's countless people you'll see on Twitter, former players, who will say, I love Coach Knight. The problem is, if he doesn't love, admire, and respect you, he's Mr. Hyde. And he could be the meanest, cruelest person you've ever seen. And Richard Mandeville alludes to that. If you, if you watch the film, I have his locker room outburst and, and Richard Mandeville said, that's the one thing I want people who watch this to know and understand that when you're in there, he can make you feel so horrible about yourself. And that's what you had alluded to earlier with Todd Jadlow. There's people who years later, they admire coach Knight for what he did for them, but they, but part of them also despises coach Knight for how they made themselves made how he made you feel about yourself. And I think the reason he's so compelling is it's all wrapped up into one person. I've never come across anyone in the last year. You've been in the business for a long time. Is there anyone who all this is wrapped up into one human being that has such admirable qualities and has such qualities where you want to just turn your head because it's like a train wreck. And, and you, you know, that's what made him, so compelling and it just this is not a biography of coach knight this film it's really kind of like all the president's men i i was asked as a journalist to find out why kids were leaving iu and and what i uncovered was that mr hyde what we were seeing was just the tip of the iceberg and i think one thing a lot of people as i watch uh, the reaction on twitter Everybody focuses on Neil Reed and grabbing the student by the arm and all these little things. And what they fail to, to, to kind of digest is that even the university came to the conclusion that he was making people scared within the university. He was making professors. And there's a bite from John Walda right towards the tail end of the film when he concludes his investigation he said half of the board of trustees that it was time to move on because it, it almost, and, and, and I think we had a bite in there at one point about it, that it almost became kind of a workplace violence issue where Indiana had been put on notice by my reporting and they had, they had instituted zero tolerance. 
that if all of a sudden if he had touched anyone in the university, again, he had thrown a pot at a secretary, he had cursed out. Uh, Dottie Frapwell was the lead, head legal counsel for the university. They were meeting to decide what three games he would be suspended and how the $30,000 would be taken out of his salary. And he verbally berated her. And I think the board of trustees said, we can't have someone doing that in our university. There's so much focus put on the Neil Reed and uh, Kent Harvey incidents, but really he was a bully. And he, people in and around the university, you know, feared for their safety at some level, right? And you just can't have that in today's society. So that's why he lost his job. But you shouldn't feel embarrassed for admiring him. And I I can't look any player in the eye and say, you know, they have their feelings towards Coach Knight. And all I know is I've talked to a number of different players, and there's a bit of bipolar schizophrenia in how they talk about him. Even Neil Reed, he would gush about coach Knight. But then again, there's the other part of them, the, the Mr. Hyde part that he despised how coach Knight had treated him. And, you know, I think Neil Reed is a real courageous guy. I've learned a lot from him back then. And even doing the film now, you know, I, I say to myself, I just wish somebody, I just wish Penn state had a Neil Reed who had stepped forward and maybe a few less kids would have been abused there. I wish someone in USA gymnastics or, you know, Michigan state or Baylor had someone who had the courage of Neil Reed. And, and, and when the film ends, I hope people think that. And I think moving forward over the next year, two years, five years, 10 years, when you see somebody come forward, what I want people is not to immediately dismiss them. Because you'll have somebody step forward and say, this person did this to me. And kind of our immediate reaction as a society is, Bill Cosby wouldn't touch a woman. What are you talking about? And then 65 women later, you're like, yeah, he did, right? Same thing with Nasser at at Michigan State and USA Gymnastics. Or he's been the head doctor for, you know, over a decade for USA Gymnastics. That couldn't happen. Just take a moment to listen to the victim. And as a journalist, what I say is, what do they have to gain by coming forward? And what do they have to lose? And more often than not, they have a lot to lose and very little to gain. And that kind of gives them credibility in my eyes. And that's what Neil did to me. When I looked, I go, what does he have to gain right now by coming forward? Nothing. I go, what does he have to lose? He's probably going to be destroyed in the media. So I believed what he was saying a little more than I would have if he had a lot to gain. I hope that makes sense. No, it makes all the sense um, in the world. Uh, it's a terrific film, The Last Days of Night, ESPN 30 for 30, Robert Abbott. Uh, Robert, before you go, something I ask every guest, particularly ones who involve them and immerse themselves in work like this, is what music were you listening to, either while you were working and cutting the film or to relax after the fact or to exercise to burn off some steam? What was the soundtrack of this process for you? It, it's not music. The soundtrack for me, is what I said earlier, was just the audio because again, I wasn't watching it, but the film, All the President's Men, and it it just got me in the mood to actually tell the story the way they did. I have a wide variety of musical, uh, I, I love the Rolling Stones, the Who, U2, I love country music, but what I had on in the background this project was the film All the President's Men because John Dahl kept asking me, tell your story like they did. You guys are probably pretty tired, right? Well, you should be. Go on home. Get a nice hot bath. Rest up 15 minutes. Then get your asses back in gear. We're under a lot of pressure, you know, and you put us there. Nothing's riding on this except the uh, First Amendment of the Constitution freedom of the press and maybe the future of the country. And oftentimes I will have music on in the background. 
just to relax or whatever. But in this case, I had that DVD looping. So when Dustin Hoffman knocks on the door and the person, it, it's cracked open and he's trying to get them to let him in, it reminded me how difficult it was for me to get people to talk and not have them hang up the phone on me. So it wasn't a musical soundtrack. It was literally the soundtrack of all the president's men that, that finally, you know, drew the film out of me because it was very difficult for me to talk about myself or what I had done, but all the president's men, if you haven't watched it, I, I suggest everybody to go watch it. And that's really what inspired me to tell my story. You know, all the times I've asked that question, you're the first one to answer the dulcet tones of Dustin Hoffman. So. <laughs> exactly. Redford's in that too, though. Redford's pretty good. Oh, yeah. Yes, and the, the gravelly Hal Holbrook and Jason Robards. Uh, terrific film. No question about that. Out of curiosity, did you like Spotlight, which was many people saw as this generation's All the President's Men? I loved it. If you ask my wife, uh, I've been married close to 20 years, and she's she's like, why do you love these movies? And And I like, even going back, I love Spotlight because it reminds me of what I've done and what journalists do. It's not pretty. You're making a lot of phone calls. You're not out to get the Catholic church. All of a sudden things start falling into place. And you're like, Oh my God. Same thing with the insider with uh, Al Pacino. Oh, I love that one too. Yeah. Even Aaron Brockovich, my wife's like, why do you love this movie? And I go, I can relate to Aaron Brockovich knocking on the door, trying to talk to victims. And it, there's so many moments in that film that hit home with me. Because really what you have to do as a journalist, you have to get them to trust you. And there's moments in the bar where she doesn't know if she should trust this guy or not. And then he trusts her. And then there's all the victims who think she's screwing him over. And then she has to go back out and they ultimately trust her. And Neil Reed ultimately, and all the people I talked to, all the former players, I talked to dozens of parents that that was one part that really got me in once a couple of sets of parents trusted me they spread word to other parents and all of a sudden they called me or answered my calls and a lot of it was off the record or on the record but not for attribution and it helped me understand the story it helped me understand what their kids went through and what they went through so i love spotlight and any of those stories about journalists trying to kind of uncover the truth are you know, very entertaining to me and they really hit home. His name's Robert Abbott. Again, the film is Last Days of Night. Please check it out December 11th or on ESPN+. Plus. Uh, you can get the free week trial, watch the film, and then cancel. No, I didn't just say that out loud, but you should see Last Days of Night no matter what. Uh, Robert Abbott, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me on. Have a great day. We'll be back right after this, but first, a quick word from the sponsor of this podcast, The Nation Magazine. Okay, look, the need for independent journalism has never been more important, and The Nation brings it each and every week like they've been doing since 1865. I'm serious. This is what you gotta read. It's The Nation Magazine. Go to thenation.com slash subscribe, and please never forget that when you support The Nation magazine, you are also supporting the continued existence of this podcast. So please subscribe. Go to www.thenation.com slash subscribe. And now, back to the Edge of Sports podcast. And now I've got some choice words about the NFL, Colin Kaepernick, and the Washington football team. Okay, look, the NFL's collusion against Colin Kaepernick has moved from outrage to farce to a numbing frustration with the plutocratic right-wing cabal that owns the teams of the nation's most popular sports league. Every week, quarterbacks succumb to injury, and scrap heap players with a fraction of Kaepernick's resume are exhumed to take the field. People who care about political censorship grit their teeth, turn their heads, and endure. But the actions by the Washington football team this week demand that we stop and reckon with what a cruel joke this has all become. First, for those who don't know, Washington lost their starting quarterback, Alex Smith, to a gruesome leg injury. Then Smith's backup, Colt McCoy, had his leg broken on Monday. 
In comes his replacement, someone who has been on the team for all of a week, football punchline Mark Sanchez, most famous for the phrase, butt fumble. Now the team needed a backup for Sanchez. Surely, with a 6-6 six and six record and their playoff hopes slipping from owner Dan Snyder, they would at least inquire about Kaepernick. Not so much. Coach Jay Gruden said that for football reasons, this would not be the case. The reasoning is laughable. The last time Colin Kaepernick had to step in for a team whose game plan was designed for Alex Smith, he only took the team, the San Francisco 49ers, to the Super Bowl. There is a great writer for USA Today named Steven Ruiz, and he did a thorough, brutal, and damn near humiliating debunking of the idea that Kaepernick could not run this particular offense, and his piece was tweeted by Kaepernick's former teammate, Eric Reed. Then, as the racist skins continued to hem and haw about why they were choosing to leak away their season, the same excuses were trotted out on social media for reasons why Kaepernick wouldn't be signed, and we've heard them all before. He doesn't want to play. He couldn't be in shape. And the most egregious one, he hasn't thrown a pass since 2016. That last excuse was particularly nauseating because the player signed from the graveyard of forgotten quarterbacks to back up Sanchez is named Josh Johnson, who hasn't thrown a pass in the NFL since 2011. The truth, ignored by the access merchants in the sycophantic wing of the NFL's media, is that Kaepernick is still working out six days a week and is in, by all accounts, the best shape of his life. That would be an odd lifestyle choice for someone done playing football. The reality is that twisted brute Dan Snyder is willing to sacrifice a season that started with great promise to continue the league-wide collusion against Kaepernick's employment prospects. This isn't something just for football fans in the D.C. area to give a damn about, but all people who believe that political expression should not cost a person their job at the height of their earning power. Now, I must admit, it would have been fascinating to see Kaepernick signed by a team adorned in a racist name, rooted in settler colonialism, genocide, and displacement. My guess is that he would have become the first person to criticize the name and call for it to be changed while wearing the racist skins uniform. Several players have done so after leaving the team. But dollars to donuts, Kaepernick would have done it while donning the burgundy and gold. One can only wonder if that was a consideration for Snyder as well. But when you have a racist billion-dollar brand, nothing matters more than that bottom line. And now it's time for the Just Stand Up Award. Just stand up and just sit your ass down. The Just Stand Up Award this week goes to tennis player Andy Murray, who has long been a supporter of women's rights, long been a proud feminist. Uh, He was raised by his mother, Judy, who's a feminist activist. And he shared a very strong opinion on the Ballon d'Or women's winner, Ada Hegerberg being asked to twerk on stage by the host of the Ballon d'Or ceremonies. It was disgusting. It was widely condemned. And Murray wrote, Why do women still have to put up with that shit? What questions did they ask Mbappe and Modric? That's two other uh, football players. And um, and to Andy Murray, it was just one comment. He's made much longer ones in the past, but it seems like a good time to recognize Andy Murray. That was suggested by reader Keith Danner. Thank you, Keith. The Just Sit Your Ass Down Award goes to Dana White, the proprietor of UFC, uh, Ultimate Fighting Championship, and his continued promotion of Greg Hardy, uh, who is a former Dallas Cowboy, former Carolina Panther, and longtime practitioner of violence against women. It's not just uh, his continued promotion of Greg Hardy as an ultimate fighter. It's Dana White justifying putting Greg Hardy on the card with a fighter named Rachel Ostevich, uh, who herself is a survivor of domestic violence. And then him speaking for Rachel Ostevich, not having her speak for herself and saying her take on it was, his story isn't my story. Everybody's story is different, and I believe in second chances. I have no problem fighting on the same card with this guy. He didn't do anything to Rachel Ostevich. She was totally cool with it. Having her support was a key factor in making that decision. I mean, if you believe what Dana White is saying, I mean, you might as well uh, spit in my face and tell me it's raining. 
mean, this this guy is just uh, somebody who, you know, he's lying when his lips are moving. Rachel Ostovich not speaking for herself. Dana White speaking for her. The whole thing makes me queasy as hell. And even if she was okay with it, it's still a problem. Dana White, please sit your ass down. We'll be back right after this with a quick word from Edge of Sports. Hey, everybody out there. This is Dave Zirin with the Edge of Sports podcast. People got to know that we put this podcast on with elbow grease and and bubble gum on a weekly basis. And we're proud of the work that we do. We love it. But we can't do it without support from you, the listener. So please go to patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod and support the podcast. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. Any little bit you might give to support the podcast actually makes a huge difference to the work we're trying to do. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. We appreciate you. Make no mistake about it. And now, back to the Edge of Sports podcast. Now I've got a couple of readers' comments that uh, about some of the past shows. Uh, the first one is from Anonymous. Uh, she asked to not. She asked for me to not say her name, but it's about Reuben Foster and. Uh, the football player who is currently on the NFL exempt list after being arrested uh, three times for violence against women. This is what this reader wrote in. She wrote, I am female, a senior, and a lifelong feminist, and although I haven't followed Foster's case closely, I'm as concerned as my demographics would predict. Recently, I read a fairly extensive piece in the San Francisco Chronicle, and toward the end was astonished to see this. Quote, Foster himself is no stranger to domestic violence. At the age of 18 months, Foster was shot and wounded by his father, who was attempting to shoot his mother. In 2013, after being a fugitive for 16 years, Danny Foster was arrested in connection with the shooting. End quote. I feel this deserves a great deal of discussion. This man is in need of whatever care can be given to an adult who is victimized by severe abuse as a child, in addition to the attention we must pay to the distorted socialization of all boys. This commitment in no way diminishes the need to protect women from the aggression of such damaged men. The reality is we as a society need a cultural reboot of the sort undertaken by South Africa's Truth and Reconciliation Commission, but one that is broader, deeper, and hopefully more successful. I just wanted to read that. I think that's that's deep and that's very true. And when we talk about abuse and violence against women, if we're not looking at the history and looking at the cycle and how abuse perpetuates itself, uh, we're doing it wrong. We're doing the reporting wrong because that's important to expose time and again that you know damaged boys grow up to be damaged men. Uh, the second comment that came in was from a listener named Hunter Ryan. Uh, who was responding to a question I asked uh, on the air about Dwight Howard and the rumors surrounding Dwight Howard and his homosexuality and how those rumors were being taken on social media, often in a very negative and homophobic light, uh, true or not. And I asked the question about whether or not uh, this signifies progress or regress in terms of the general response. And this is what Hunter Ryan wrote to me. He wrote, I think that, quote-unquote, we are making progress. Of course we are. Old taboos are passing away as solidarity among marginalized groups grows. But it's two steps forwards, one step back. Power concedes nothing without a demand, and that power must be pried from the bottleneck of heteronormative white males that have concentrated it for centuries and distributed to the people. Regarding the specifics of Dwight Howard, I think that there are more cultural currents flowing through this situation other than your average run-of-the-mill homophobia in pro sports, e.g. African-American alpha males, for lack of a better word description, and being on the lowdown, transgender individuals and their place within the African-American culture as well, and the terrible behaviors that comes with anonymity and the internet. I do not think things are getting worse. We might be seeing more of the bad parts that were already there, but humanity is for sure 100% no question evolving towards the inclusion of all people into pro sports. At least I hope so. Okay, I wanted to read that comment. I think there's some very strong points made there uh, with regarding Dwight Howard. The one thing I would add, though, 
is that the kind of uh, homophobia and anti-trans, violently anti-trans attitudes that are identified uh, certainly exist. And I think Hunter would agree with me beyond African-American culture. I mean, that's something that uh, is has a stronghold on the right wing in this country, a stronghold on the alt-right, and is something that's perpetuated throughout uh, their forces uh, to a strong degree uh, and to a frightening degree. Uh, but I think the point that he's making about two steps forward, one step back, and the need to continue to push forward is something I definitely wanted to share. So thank you very much, Hunter Ryan. Uh, that's all we have for this week's show. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Thank you to my producer. Thank you to everybody out there who supports the Edge of Sports podcast. Please write comments on Apple, Stitcher, or your podcast app of choice. Please give it ratings. All that stuff makes a huge difference. Uh, please check out our Patreon page, especially come January 1st, because we're going to actually develop it and do some cool stuff with it. And please, everybody, keep listening. Stay frosty. We are out of here. Peace.